Hey guys, Rachel here. I'm here to give a shout out to our season seven sponsor, Learn FTD. Learn FTD is a website stocked full of useful FTD resources, information on genetics and genetic testing, tips for approaching doctor's visits, and so much more. Presented in a digestible way, Learn FTD provides extremely helpful information across all facets of the disease. But more than that, Learn FTD highlights hope and a path forward through genetic testing and research. For more information and to join their mailing list to stay up to date on their growth, visit www.learnftd.com rm. My name is Maria and I'm Rachel and we're the hosts of Remember Me. Our podcast is dedicated to preserving the memories of those diagnosed with dementia. We hope this episode helps you feel more connected, provides a deeper understanding and allows you to learn to accept the good. Always, always accept the good. This is Remember Me. Today, we are here with our friend Lauren from across the pond, and we're going to talk all about your mom, Leslie. So, Rachel, Wait, before, you- before we jump into Leslie, Lauren, do people from England get annoyed when Americans are like, across the pond? No, okay. no, I don't. Anyway, so it's fine. It's absolutely fine. I knew you were going to say that too, Marie. I was waiting for it. <laughs> I don't know. It's yeah, stupid Americans, huh? No, it's so good. I would say it too. I just didn't know. You know, everyone has their own thing. Anyway, sorry. Let's talk about Leslie. I was going to say, Rachel, do you want to ask the first question? I don't. No, no, No? never. Okay. It's always you. Okay. (laughs) All right, Lauren, can you share with us that first thing that happened or first odd behavior that just made you go, wait a minute, something's not right with my mom? I would say probably during the COVID pandemic, um, we hadn't been seeing each other. She'd kind of not been herself for a long time before that, maybe. But look, you know, like with us all, we can't see it until we already know about it. Um, So I would say like October 2020, she had not been out for a while, which wouldn't be unusual for people during COVID. However, suddenly she was always unwell. So she'd say, I'm sick. I'm always sick. And I'd say, you need to get checked out. And she'd just, the next day she'd be fine again. And then she fell down the stairs, which was very strange for her because she was quite independent. She was only 66. She went into hospital. Nothing was found then. You know, they just said she'd fallen. And then in January 21, I'd gone to see her for the first time in a little while. And I just noticed she just looked very unwell. However, to let you in on more of her story, she did have an addiction to painkillers. So I always kind of put that down to what was the problem. So there's quite a lot where I can't see where the medications was the problem to when it became something else. And I probably will never know that. That's really interesting. I think this is the first story that we've had addiction. Yes. So it was 
just painkillers so obviously mm-hmm. nothing illegal things she was getting prescribed right. um, and it was always managed to the point where you wouldn't know if you didn't mm-hmm. know her something shifted though from her being able to manage this mm-hmm. to it becoming a problem so there was a long time where I just assumed it was medication I think we all did at that point it makes me feel guilty for a little bit that I of was course. putting it down to that right um, we all kind of blame ourselves I know in these situations that we didn't notice right yeah. how Hind- could you hindsight. know yeah how could you know I know so she has her fall yeah and then you go to see her yeah and you're trying she- to explain away what's different like yes yeah, so why she she's acting different very she's always been quite small very petite but she looked just like she hadn't eaten for a long time she wasn't living on her own so um she was married uh, not to my dad to my stepdad and he was always messaging me saying you know she's not shopping or she's not cooking she's not ironing she's not doing you know the usual things she wasn't working at the time so she was just being you know like a housewife just doing the general things so when I went to see her I was really shocked because she didn't look like my mom she was very confused and again I just I didn't know what to say to her because she wouldn't have listened I kept on telling her you need to go to the doctors oh I've been there's nothing wrong I just need my medication and you know that was back and forth for us for a good couple of months um, until about April and my stepdad had called me in the night and said you know I've called an ambulance because your mum keeps on falling and I can't pick her up and I just thought well at least they'll take her in and they'll do something about it or you know if there's something actually wrong you know we might get somewhere with this even if it's just medication they might be able to see that because she was put in an induced coma in the hospital and had serious hospital delirium (laughs) while she was in there but was able to self-discharge and was told there was nothing wrong so when she fell was she unconscious yes okay yeah so they said she had a seizure so again I think seizures and FTD sometimes come hand in hand I'm told yes they do Mm -hmm. yes Mm mm-hmm so possibly, but again, I was thinking she'd had, you know, too much medication and this was a result of it. So when right. I spoke to hospitals, because my stepdad was not very forthcoming with trying to get answers, I was telling them, you know, she's got an addiction problem. Maybe it's this. They did an MRI um, and a CT scan and all they found was a um, small tumor behind her ear. Uh, which they said wouldn't have caused any of this. It might have been there for a while. And she was able to self-discharge as soon as she got over the delirium. And then that was it. No one wanted to know again. And that is so frustrating. Yes. I'm sure you guys were way more frustrated than Maria and I are now, but it just, it's maddening that the hospitals and the medical professionals just, oh, well, nothing we can do. It's nothing. Don't worry. This is just who your mom is now, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They basically gave her a diagnosis of um, epilepsy, um, which she didn't have. Uh, they told her she couldn't drive. She didn't drive anyway. And they actually put her on medication for epilepsy, even though she'd only ever had this one seizure. Oh, wow. Um, so that was the diagnosis. So I've got, since she passed, I've had all of her paperwork uh, that she never showed me, of course. And yeah, that was what she came home with was epilepsy and they wanted to do another follow-up with a 
the doctor who I believe called her I wasn't there and kind of signed her off as she's okay you know there's nothing wrong with her now what was her personality like at this time like was she able to communicate with you like I fell no biggie or was she like something is wrong with me she would always have been going to doctors if she thought something was wrong but she wasn't I wish I could have asked her you know do you think something's really wrong but I did kind of say you need to get checked out you really you know we all we're all worried about you we don't want anything to happen to you and she'd say it's fine I'm okay and you know I've I've been to the doctors and they know you know they know what they're doing which we know now that we don't not always know what they're doing and the, the general GP was not able to see things that I was so it's hard and I think we were all going at her maybe and she was going you know I don't want to deal with this because before she would have been at the doctors for anything that she thought was wrong and the fact that she was turning up at the doctors for prescriptions that she'd already had because she'd taken them and she hadn't remembered so I found out afterwards that there was multiple safeguardings around her and around the situation But before any diagnosis, they're not going to talk to me. What about your stepdad? Were they (sighs) engaging with him at all or? Um, No. So he was not helpful at all in this situation. He only seemed to worry that he wasn't doing the things at home that she should be doing. And that really frustrated me because I found lists that he'd written out for her, you know, do this washing, iron this. And I thought he hadn't told me as much as what I found out afterwards. So I found out from neighbours and I I would constantly get people come up to me and say, oh, yeah, I saw your mum and she looked really unwell. And I was like, why didn't you tell me? Are you an only child or do you have siblings? No, I have three other sisters and I had a brother, but he passed away in 2005. Wow. Yes. So were you all coming together at this point or did it cause a rift? So I wasn't really in contact with my sisters. Well, I've got one older sister and two younger ones. So I'm kind of in the middle. And me and my two younger sisters, we're, we're not close at all. But at that point, I did make contact with them because they were seeing her a lot more. They live closer to her. And I think I struggled to get anywhere with you know anyone who they they would message her a lot and call her a lot and I'm sure they were worried but it was always down to me in in that beginning bit to do the things I think they were chasing doctors and stuff but I think we're all coming you know in different angles and I don't think that was helping I think because we're not a close-knit family we weren't all kind of doing the same thing at the same time so maybe she felt pressured I don't know into just stepping back and not telling us you must have felt so isolated and you're you know something is really not right so how did you deal with that how did you press forward for more answers so I remember we've got a system on doctors I'm not sure how it is for you guys but it's like an online system where you you're not allowed to call your doctors now because they won't answer the phone so it's all online and I remember sending messages to them saying I'm worried about my mum you know can someone please contact me I'm worried about her even before I thought dementia I thought something's wrong I don't know what it is and they were trying to help but again I think because 
she was classed as being an independent person living on you know what looked like a normal life she could walk she could talk she could engage in conversation she just to a doctor that didn't know her or someone else I don't think they would have seen it you had to really sit with her for a little while to see something's not quite right and I guess even for me I work in the hospital I used to be a carer even for me my first thing wasn't dementia for her I think it was well it's an age thing isn't it people always said oh you know she's too young to get dementia that was the one thing that you hear I imagine everyone hears that this is a heavy one I think because I mean, I guess every story has that element of isolation, but this one just feels so like I can feel the pain and the frustration and just that feeling of like, what do I do? Yeah. Where do I turn? Like, I feel like I'm in that haze with yeah. you of like, what is happening and how yeah. do I get answers? And like, you're yeah. just up against so much trying to figure it out, but you know, in your gut. Yeah. I remember I sent because I would talk to my mum all the time on the phone. I would ring her when I went to work, when I finished work. And although we weren't always close, you know, there was the family dynamics are hard. And I think, you know, FTD brings that out as well, sometimes even more. But we were, you know, always in contact. And I just remember thinking, I don't know how to get through to her because if she's not aware, you know, how much can you tell them? You know, you can't mm. say, I think you've got dementia or, you know, and I do remember saying, I think your medication is a problem. And she would say, I know I'm going to get help for that. And she just became vulnerable. She just became like from a really independent mom who had five children, who did everything in the household to just being like a shell of a person so quickly, so quickly. And, you know, whether it's slow or quick, I, I don't, you know, it's, it's still hard how fast that decline can be. How did you guys end up getting the diagnosis? So we've got to about July 21 and it kind of gone back and forth with this. We don't know where we're at. And she called an ambulance and that she's never done that before. And I remember being sat at work and she said, I can't breathe. I've called an ambulance. So I've left work. I've gone straight. To her house and the ambulance is there and she seemed okay and they've gone you know you know she seems all right you know she had COPD she was a smoker but I've never seen her have chest pain before and they just brushed it off and then she went on holiday with my stepdad you know I didn't want her to go but she was like no I'll be fine I need to get away and then I'll come back and I'll be okay and she stayed there for two days on a caravan holiday and I remember being told that she got lost going to the toilet and was very disorientated, not being in her own house, you know, because she lived in her house for 46 years, I believe. And he dropped her home and he actually left her on her own. And that was the last time I actually spoken to him properly. Okay. <clears throat> Let me unpack that a little bit. Yeah. Was he like, I'm out? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think I I don't blame him for not wanting to be a carer because I don't think that even if you're married to someone, it determines that you should be a carer. However, you know, he left her without food, without money. And from then, that was beginning of August. 
she just called an ambulance probably two to three times a day at one point, going into the hospital, discharging herself, being allowed to discharge herself. And she was messaging me saying, I'm scared. I've fallen down the stairs. So she kept replaying this, I've fallen down the stairs thing. And I don't think it was happening. I think this was something that she remembered from before. And every time the hospital, no, she's fine. She's okay. There's nothing wrong. I wonder if it's like she just knew something was wrong. And all that she could come up with is call 911. I don't, is it 911 there? 999. Yes. 999. Call 999. Like something's wrong in my body and my mind. Yeah. So her main symptom that I now know was anxiety. You know, she'd had depression in the past, but anxiety, I've never seen her be anxious. I'm sure we all are in our own ways, but anxiety. And I think that was the chest pain because she'd always go in with chest pain and they'd always (laughs) give her chest x-rays when actually the problem wasn't in her chest it was you know there was something worse going on there but it just you know I worked for the NHS you know I didn't know a lot about FTD before my mum but it really felt like no one was listening I remember having conversations with doctors and saying that she's not well she's just going to come home and then go back into hospital again how long is this going to carry on for before well I don't know she was leaving the house with the door wide open and her house was just wide open and she was walking to the shops to buy cigarettes without money. And it was just, she just was doing stuff that she would never do. She would never do that. And there's probably more that I don't know because I wasn't living at home. But, you know, the neighbours, bless them, were so good. They were always kind of messaging me when the ambulance was outside. And, and I found out after that she was messaging them, asking them how to use the TV remote. And I didn't know that she didn't know how to use that. And that's, to me, I was like, he must have known that before living with her, that she wasn't able to. And I wasn't aware until much later on. And it's it's sad. It's sad. It's sad. And it also just, I, I'm not downplaying the neighbors, but if a person who lives next door can kind of sense like, hmm, something isn't right. And then she's going to the hospital where she has the chance to get this diagnosis or steps towards the diagnosis. Like, how could she just, this isn't a question, it's more rhetorical, but how, how could they not have picked up on like, oh, she's back. Maybe we should, you know, dig around a little bit. Yeah. I think they just, they're so easy to kind of let people discharge themselves especially when they're busy I suppose she didn't want to she didn't want to be she'd get there and then think oh I don't want to be here and that's a huge part of what she did her whole diagnosis actually is she was never happy she was not happy at home she wasn't happy in the hospital she wasn't happy in a care home where she stayed I think in her mind she was not happy anywhere because it her home wasn't her home anymore because she didn't feel safe. She wasn't safe in her own mind. That was a big thing for her. She was just scared. And she spent a long time in hospital when they finally admitted her in the August. They, you know, and I work there, so it's very hard for me to be at work and know that she was in another ward 
messaging me a lot because <laughs> that was her big thing. And they had done an MRI scan, or I think actually a CT scan, and they kept on asking me, does she drink alcohol? And I never wondered, you know, I just thought they were just asking it. And it wasn't until later on that I found the results of that CT scan said it was either alcohol or FTD. So I don't think I've heard that before. No. So that was on the CT scan. It said the frontal atrophy was either related to a history of alcohol or frontal temporal dementia. So at the time I kept thinking, no, she doesn't drink. But I kept saying, but she's got an addiction. Because mm. thinking it was linked, possibly they were thinking she'd done some damage, which I'm sure would have happened. But it wasn't until she, you know, come home from hospital, which she was so happy about. I was so hoping that she would come home from hospital and they'd put in a package of care together yes. where someone would come in. And as soon as I brought her home, within half an hour, I could see this was going to happen again. And it did. So going back to the CT when they said alcohol or FTD, did they sit you down and tell you that? Did they tell her? Like, what What was that all like? So I that was the 11th of August she'd had that CT. So I we didn't get her diagnosis until the 7th of September. And that, I think, in turn, they had the scan results but wanted to do the memory assessment too. It was only when she came out of hospital that I called up our memory clinic and I said I really want my mom to be seen and they did luckily they had a cancellation and they came to the house and I was there and they did the assessment for an hour I wasn't allowed to be in the room and they came back and the psychiatrist came in the house with someone else and sat me down tried to speak to mom and she just walked off she said I can't deal with this and she walked away so I got the diagnosis on my own Mum was not told at that point because she just wouldn't have taken that well at that time. And I wasn't shocked. I think I was shocked because it was FTD because I hadn't heard a lot about it. But I wasn't shocked that it was dementia. And the whole time, is she docile, quiet? Is she abrasive and aggressive? Like, what is her kind of demeanor? Did it change through her FTD journey? She changed a lot. She just became like I was her mum, which was so different because and she would be mortified with the way that she acted. She, you know, would shout and scream, cry all the time. I'd never seen my mum cry before, always crying, always worried. And then the obsessions came out. She'd always had a bit of obsession, you know, addi- you know with the addiction, I guess there's obsession there. But obsessions were very strange things the same tv program the same channel she stopped smoking which was a very very weird thing for me (laughs) i don't know why she stopped smoking it's like it disappeared from her mind completely she lost interest yeah 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 but she would every so often say i need you know i want a cigarette and i try and avoid that because every new thing that she had would become an obsession maybe and it sounds awful that you strip back everything from someone but the more you gave her the more she'd become obsessed with it so she was obsessed with her phone that was a hard thing so she had her phone almost you know right until she passed away you know how do you take that away from someone but as soon as she got into a care home it was a very 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 quick decline from there actually and did you move her into the care home 
pretty soon after receiving the diagnosis? Was that kind of your first step? It, it wasn't. It was a decision kind of given to me as not really a decision. It mm. was it was like she can't live on her own. You know, the carers aren't able to be there, you know, in the night when she's going to call an ambulance. And, you know, she always kept a very well together house. And it was not like that in the end. And she actually went into three care homes within three months because they couldn't manage her behavior. So the first one was she was only there for three days and they sent her back into hospital where she stayed for six weeks, which I think she was okay in the hospital because she knew I worked there, you know, but the lack of visitors, it was one visitor that was all we could have during this COVID was still in the hospital. So even if more people wanted to see her, I was like a sole visitor at that point because I could go in more often than other people could. And, you know, that's hard because she was very family orientated and all she wanted was her children to see her. So going into the care home was the next best thing than being in hospital for her anyway. But the care homes just, they weren't cut out for her type of dementia or the way that she portrayed herself. And it's it was scary to other people, I think, who who don't have dementia. So in the end, she went to an all dementia unit, which ranges from people in their 30s to much older. So it was, it. I wouldn't say, you know, I say it's a nice place, but, you, you know, you go into these places and, you know, it, it's hard to walk into them, isn't it? I'm sure, you know, when you see people that are very unwell, it's hard. Yeah. So, how did things progress? It it sounds like you said it was a pretty quick decline. Yes, because she was obviously diagnosed in the September and passed in in July. So we didn't have very long with, you know, to, to kind of gather all that information. And, and But I would say she went into the care home somewhat self-sufficient and that was what was told to them. And, you know, she was, she could, you know eat and drink and she was mobile and she wasn't incontinent so you know on paper looked very good you know to, to a care home I used to work in there it, that looks pretty good to someone who's coming into a care home they weren't prepared for her she would be constantly ringing and calling us and messaging us and we would be in contact with the care home and I would say you know she's she's telling me she hasn't eaten She's telling me she's scared. She's telling me, you know, people are coming in her room. And it's really hard when you're not there to know what is the truth because she's not lying. She just feels unsafe. That's so her she reality, would... right? You know? Yeah. So she would sit in her room all day. She never left her room, unfortunately. Um, she would make cups of tea, but staying in her room was the, the hardest thing because we could never take her out and over I think Christmas time I'd gone in and it was just me and my older sister that were there for my mum during this journey um, everyone else had kind of I don't want to say give up but they didn't see her so whatever way you know you want to put that they they weren't there so it was just me and my older sister and you know during COVID we kind of took it in turns to visit her because we couldn't do it together. And they made exceptions for us in the end because mum really just needed someone there. 
all the time actually I think I would go in and she would say oh you're gonna leave you know and and I say no mum I've just got here and then I'd walk out the door and as soon as I'd walk out she would call me and message me and say when are you coming in to see me you know so her memory was very poor her short-term memory and I was really shocked by that because you hear all these stories of you know the memory isn't that big a thing but for her, it did play a huge part as well. I'm not sure it was the same with you with the memory. I don't think my dad was the memory. My dad was just, he was odd. He was very different, very weird, very, very behavioral. But I think your mom, she sounds like just so terrified. That's what I hear. Like the 911 calling, um, trying to make it seem like everything's okay. But deep down, she's like, what is happening to me? And that must have been so difficult, especially yeah. when you got the diagnosis, knowing. Yeah. yeah. So she was told once that she had FTD and the psychiatrist, you know, was with me and with her. And there was a few choice words from her <laughs> with that. But I don't think she took that in because I always say her before, you know, or normal, you know, whatever normal is. She would have known what dementia was and taken that as a real shock as if we were told. And she never remembered. And I never told her again. We spent the, that time with her unwell, telling her as little as possible about the negative things because she would just go with that. You know, she couldn't see positives in anything. So I didn't feel like there was any need to tell her, you know, you've got dementia or, you know, even with the lockdowns, there was times when I couldn't see her for weeks and weeks. And, you know, I wouldn't tell her, you know, oh, it might be another week or another week because, you know, in the end, I don't think it's lying, is it? It's just trying to be kind, you know. Yeah. You know, what are you getting from telling them the truth in those situations? Right. Um, now, how did it all end? Can you yeah. sort of walk us through? Yeah. So obviously, just obviously stayed in our room. So she you know, wasn't able to do anything other than just make cups of tea. So I didn't really see any change in her physically until around maybe end of May. And she started falling. And by this point, she'd already had what was a lump come off on her head and it looked like a cyst and we could never get her to hospital appointments they couldn't get her there because of her severe anxiety and I'm still fighting to this day you know complaints about this unfortunately because I don't think it was managed right she should have gone to hospital appointments much sooner so she'd already had this lump and it just got bigger and bigger and bigger and I've never seen anything like it. Most people haven't. And I don't know if that was causing the falls. We don't know. But she fell a couple of times and they managed to get her back up. And then she'd finally got one hospital appointment, which was a dermatologist appointment. And they took one look at that and went, that's not good. And the consultant didn't realize that mum had dementia and kind of told her, you know, all oh, this looks like cancer. And she'd already previously had cancer, but she, I don't know, she just went with that for a long time. She kept on telling me, I've got cancer again, there's nothing they can do. 
And I said, oh, no, mum, because we hadn't had any diagnosis at that point. So, you know, although I, in my head, I knew that it was something, you know, she'd gone to these hospital appointments. She had to be medicated, you know, which, you know, medication played a huge part in this. It was always like risk assessing her. So the lump, we'd waited for this appointment to come for a scan of her brain because it was... It, it was basically a tumour and uh, that probably caused a stroke um, and potentially was causing the mobility issues. Again, it, I don't know how far the FTD had progressed in this time. You know, her behaviour was, was bad and whether she had that lump or not, I don't know how much would have been different in her behaviour. So we got to me kind of going... I, you know, you need to get her to these appointments just, you know, so at least we know what we're dealing with because she'd had cancer previously and she she just became very unwell in the June, bed bound almost instantly, uh, very quickly. And they did manage to get her to this scan. And I had a phone call, I think the 30th yeah, of June by the nurse, a lovely nurse who was looking after mum in the care home. She was in the community, but she just, she tried so hard to help mum. And she rang me and she said, you know, I'm sorry, Lauren, but your mum's got multiple brain tumours in her brain. And I was like, I was shocked, but I wasn't. And I just said, I know, I know something was wrong. I know something else was going on. But because of her dementia, that's all they saw her as was, you know, she's just, a dementia patient and even with that lump on her head it's like they would have rushed that more I think if it was you know me or you I'm sure they would have done more and said you can't leave that and she died on the 7th of July so we had only a week from when I was told that she had that to her passing away and it was it was just it was a hard thing to watch you know, I've watched people die in my job, but to watch her go and, you know, I, I I was allowed to bring my children to see her, to say goodbye. They'd never been able to go and see her because she was so anxious and behavioural. And it's my biggest regret is that maybe I could have, you know, brought them in and just hoped for the best. You know, maybe she would have been okay. You know, maybe she wouldn't have, have cried and screamed. But I had to think of my children as well. And, and you know, and it, it's really hard because all she cried for is her children and her grandchildren. And it's the most heartbreaking thing that, you know, she's got four daughters and there was only two of us who would come and see her. When my kids went to see her, she was sleeping, but she knew they were there. And, you know, and I made that decision not just for them, but because I know that's what she would have wanted for them to have said goodbye to her because, you know, they didn't get that chance. It happened so quickly. It went from her being like this normal nan to, to, to nothing in less than a year. It's just, I wasn't prepared for that at all. The birds are chirping. It's, it's one bird. Oh. <laughs> Can you hear it? I can't hear it very well. It's so interesting, like when we get to this part of stories, like the animals of the house, like <laughs> want to like comfort. I'm not kidding. They're like, 
I smell death. Like, yeah, they they're like, somebody out. needs yeah. comfort. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Well, Lauren, thank you for sharing all of that. I feel like, oh, I feel this heaviness in my chest of like what you went through to get all these answers. And then it, it was a long journey, but a quick journey at the same time. Uh, yes. Yeah. It felt like it went on for a long time, but looking back, I'm, you know, there was not, there was not enough time to, to have the conversations with her that I wish I'd had right. or, you know, asked her the things that I wish I'd asked her and whether I would have got any of those you know, answers now, I don't know, but I wish that I could have, you know, just been more, I don't know. It's hard to explain when you, when they're not here, isn't it? even her death she hadn't planned any of her funeral I you know it was all us kind of assuming what she would want I knew that she wanted to be cremated but that's that that's about it and and I know that she would have been mortified of how things happened and there were mistakes along the way and I'm still fighting these things that happened even though she's not here I still really want answers to things in yeah. case as uh, someone else goes through the same thing because other things could have helped you know I know that we could have got answers quicker I don't believe that a scan in April to August would show nothing to right. moderate right. damage you know right. how would that happen so yeah it, it's tough and I think with the behavioral variant I'm sure you're aware you've lost them before they've even yes gone physically and I think something that maybe people don't understand about this journey that aren't on it is even after they pass like you're still on this journey you know you're dealing with the fallout of you know these medical potential like mistakes that were made and I know that you're also now digging into the genetic side of the disease and trying to figure out okay, what does this mean for our family? Was this genetic for her? So it doesn't end. No, no. You it's know. like it's just started again. So this year I was like going into the new year, like last year was terrible. And yet I know this year could, could go either way with our uh, results of these genetic tests. Luckily we got my mom's blood test half an hour before she passed away oh my god get her blood test I know and again that's another thing we have to fight for but we did get it luckily and we've got probably about a six month wait now until these results come so I'm trying to put that in the back of my head as you know it could be and it couldn't be but then I couldn't not find out I don't know that some people say I don't want to know and I don't know how I could sit there and not find out. I'm sure everyone's different. I couldn't sit there and always wonder and have it in the back of my head. You know, what if? Can you walk us through what you understand the process to be like where you live? So we did some genetic counseling, um, just a small part. And they just wanted to make sure the right reasons why we want to find out and that we are you know, in the right frame of mind, I guess, because it's so soon after she passed as well. But we've done that. We had a couple of video chats. My sister actually started this. So she was the main person involved in that. And I've kind of tagged along with her. <laughs> and because um, we've got different dads, that you know, 
obviously we're part of mum, but we're genetically slightly different. But after we had our last video call and, you know, she went through, you know, the fact that we might not find out it's genetic FTD, but it might be, you know, something else. So we might find something, you know, that you're not expecting. So you're Uh, testing for just so some of the listeners are aware, I know they can test for all genetic mutations that are known. So the one that always comes to mind is like the BRCA? BRCA gene. BRCA yeah. gene. Yeah. yeah. So for breast um, cancer. So yeah. is that what you're referring to? So it's just neurology testing. So it's okay. so it could be like Huntington, Huntington's and, and things like that. We did ask about the BRCA gene because mum did have breast cancer. However, due to her age and the type of breast cancer, they don't feel like we need that, which I suppose is a good thing for us. We don't want to have more things that we might be, you know, worried about. But yeah, it's all neurology, you know, neurology. So anything related to the brain. And, you know, we we both agreed, me and my sister, you know, that, you know, we are prepared for whatever outcome. And even they can tell you they're not 100% sure. You know, she said there might be a time where there is a slight genetic problem there, but they don't know what that means yet. So you might come out with the still probable of we don't question know. marks. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And from that, so mum's result will be tested first. And then that's when we get that result. They said six months I could be longer. And after that, we would have to do more genetic counselling if we want to get tested, if it. that is needed. So it, it's a long process. Obviously, we have an NHS here. So, you know, we are very lucky. But it's still very long. You know, you want answers now. But then also, I don't want answers now. I kind of want to, you know, get over this like hard year that I had last year. Absolutely. And continue with our grieving process, which is, is still not, you know, who we're still going through. And I don't know whether you ever come out of that grieving process. I'm two years. It just, it ebbs and flows. It's like, you really just don't know. My sister shared with me the other day, she went to like a bridal expo. She's getting married in a couple of years. And she's like, I, she's like, I just got in the car and sobbed because I was like, I wish my mom could have gone with me to this, you know? But it's like, then the next day we went, when we went dress shopping, she was happy. And like, you know, you just don't know when it's going to hit you and it's something you learn to just like carry you know yeah yeah Rachel, so we, you're s- giving me a look okay. no I just I we have uh participated in research Marie and I and it just got me thinking like could I just not know for the rest of my life I'm just supposed to like wait till I start acting weird you know, like, I, I don't know. It's so, it's so heavy. And I feel like with this disease, somebody told us a long time ago, it's not a casserole disease. You can't just like drop off a casserole and be like, so sorry. Cause right. you carry all of this stuff with you. You carry maybe a gene, but then you also carry the grief and then you carry the memories of like this trauma and you carry like I don't know. It's just the way that we're talking about it right now. It's just, yeah. It's almost like you want someone to tell you, "Oh, you're acting weird now." Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But what if I'm just having a shitty day and I'm like like, explosive? 
yeah because I you know my memory sometimes is terrible and I think is this the start yeah, is this exactly. how it's yes. yes or yes. like am I grieving so is that making me miserable you know I'm working in the hospital has been really triggering for me since she mm. passed away so I haven't been in the best frame of mind yeah. um, to huh. be in my job so you know that's another thing and I think do I not enjoy things as much is this the start like yes, you know, is this the- yes. <laughs> I can relate to that so much because the brain fog that came after my mom died in the same time period that you're in right now like no one told me about brain fog so immediately you're like, well, my mom just died of an incurable brain disease and now I can't think straight. So yeah, this is going to happen to me. But there is something about this, like, I don't know, Rachel, you can probably describe it better, but like how the grief takes over your mind and like you just can't process things the way that you used to for a period of time. But you're you get better after a while, right? Yeah. I think if you just learn how to move through it, like yeah. I feel like our society as a whole, no matter where you live, you're always like moving on to the next thing. Like you're always, there's always a goal to be right. able to reach. And with grief, like what's the goal? I don't feel sad. Like you don't want to get over them or forget uh, them. Yeah. Right. Right. Mm. It's really hard and I try not to think about it as a genetic disease because, you know, otherwise I think that would take over a lot of what happens uh, in my life. Like, what's the point? You know, mm-hmm. like if, if even if I found out, I don't know how I would act. You know, I, I want to know, but I don't. Can you ever be prepared to be told right. something like that? Right. I don't know. It's more for the fact that I've got children as well. That's a big thing for me is that I've got children and, you know, that we were quite a big family. My mom had lots of grandchildren. So, you know, although I'm not in contact with my other two sisters, I, you know, I'm very much open to telling them if this mm. happens because yeah. that's not something I would hide from, you know. We're, we're all her children and, and although we're not in co- contact, they deserve to have the same right. same answers as what we've got. And then they can make their own decisions from that. Right. It's hard when we're not in contact what they would want to know anyway, isn't it? Because, mm-hmm. you know, I might not want to know and my sister might want to know that she's got it. And if she finds out, would I think, oh, well, I must have it as well. It's such a... Right, of right. course. It's yeah. like when one person learns, it's like, you learn some probability for yourself, yeah. right? Yeah. So it is hard, but like you said, you have kids and, you know, you got to make the best decisions for yourself. And I remember you were just saying about your mom, you know, she would have been like disappointed at like the end and how probably the chaos of you guys trying to plan everything. And like, I see that as one pro to getting your information yeah. is that you can get things in place. Yeah, you can plan your life and your death which is something that not a lot of people with dementia get to do you know Mm. she didn't know this was going to happen to her you know I say it's unlucky it's you know she couldn't help it either way right but the way it kind of planned out it's like nothing went in her favor Um, and then to chuck cancer in at the end Mm. you know with that was just like horrible it was almost cruel you know it's like Mm. she's already Mm. suffering so what more can we do We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. 
Hey guys, we're taking a quick break to tell you all about our season seven sponsor, Learn FTD. How about we tell everyone our favorite resources on their site? Okay, you go first. I love that they give information about genetics and testing in a digestible way. You know, I like the facts. I love their new videos interviewing caregivers. I also love that they have a printout for doctor's visits. They call it the doctor discussion guide, helping you get your ducks in a row to help guide towards a diagnosis. They also have a list of resources and caregiver tips and so much more. And we just want to give a special thank you to Learn FTD for supporting our work and valuing our voices as advocates. It means a lot. Makes us feel so good. Go check out their website, www.learnftd.com slash RM. That's learnftd.com slash RM. You know, I don't know how people do this on, on actually on their own, you know, yeah. although it was limited in the beginning when she was diagnosed and we were able to visit her, you know, the people that did come in, you know, she would be so grateful because she was so family orientated. Her, you know, on her care plan, they would say, what are your interests and hobbies? And all she said was my children. Mm. That was it. Just her children. (laughs) Because (laughs) that's all that she wanted to be. She wanted to be a mum and a nan. And although, you know, she had her struggles with that too. No one's a perfect parent. You know, none of us are. We're not? (laughs) I'm definitely not. I'm definitely not. (laughs) I was going to say, I'm being very honest and and I'm really not. So, you know, (laughs) we try our best and I think we learn from our parents. And I've learned from her mistakes as a parent that she made. And sometimes I see glimpses of her like what she says you mm-hmm. know when you're like I sound like my mom <laughs> yeah <laughs> like I didn't want to but I do mm-hmm. I know. exactly <laughs> what you mean <laughs> you always try so hard to be you know better if you didn't get the best upbringing etc but we didn't get to have a proper conversation and mm-hmm. I just wanted to have that before because I always think were we as close or does she think we were that close or you know does she think Mm. we weren't as close because we didn't see each other all the time you know what does she think of our relationship but then the last year you know people always praise everyone you know like for being there and I think I couldn't have not been yeah how could you walk away yeah we're starting to get into it a little bit but I think now let's formally jump into who Leslie was shift the vibe yeah more positive eh? (laughs) (laughs) so what would you like us to know about your mom so my mom was born in Bristol and her parents her biological parents didn't want her before they'd had her unfortunately and they had a lot of addiction and, and mental health problems themselves I found out since and she was actually left in her grandma's garden at one years old in a pram until someone was notified and she was put into care and she was adopted well she was fostered into a lovely family with my grandma and granddad and she stayed with them they adopted her when she was 15 when they were able to and she lived in a beautiful house they lived in an abbey so she she you know she got very lucky to be adopted into such a, a loving family um she always knew she was adopted so they didn't like you know they didn't hide that from her and she was brought up very religious, but she 
yeah, she was so lucky to have them because her biological parents ended up having, I believe, 10 more children after she was. Yeah. So she held, I think, a lot of trauma from maybe being the only one that was adopted. And like, why? You know, why was she adopted? And she'd had, you know, my brother very young. She fell pregnant at 16. So she kind of rebelled against the whole religion thing and and it's that nature versus nurture, I think, always will come into play, especially with my mum, because although she was brought up a certain way, how much biologically does she take from her parents, you know, right. with their the problems? That's so that interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Because they had addiction problems and um, I don't know what to, and they both suffered with depression and, you know, some other mental health illnesses, they didn't really tell us too much but I found paperwork after she passed away um kind of telling me what they look like and her brothers and sisters so she must have had all that but she's not really spoken to me about that so yeah I mean as much as she was brought up into this fat lifestyle she kind of parted ways with them after she felt pregnant and I think she always felt different I think she always felt like the odd one out not through them they never did it but she just loved being a mum. And, you know, she was married. She was made to get married quite at 16 because that's what you had to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't a good relationship for her. Um, she had my brother and sister um, and then got divorced and then met my dad and had me and my two sisters. And, yeah, you know, she was very happy. She was so happy being a mum. She loved being at home. She had that house before she went into care. For 47 years, she lived in the same house. We all grew up there. All of our memories are there. You know, she was a carer, you know, as her job. She was such a good carer. She would go out of her way to do so much for, you know, she was taking some little residence washing home because this woman had really nice clothes and they always bundled all the washing in together in a care home, you know, and she would take it home and wash and iron it and bring it back. And, you know, I just remember how happy she was when we were young just having a baby on the hip you know cooking dinner you know just being a mum was what she loved but she just did she wanted to be a nan and you know when we all had our children she loved them but there was always this I don't know like a barrier I don't know with her like she couldn't be what she properly wanted to be and again you know I don't know where you know the dementia and FTD would have started I've asked psychiatrists and they believe you're looking at five six years before her diagnosis so that answers a lot of questions she just liked being independent and you know she was always shopping she loved shopping she loved cleaning she was always cleaning very OCD cleaning um I wish I had a bit of that because it might help me too <laughs> like that, it doesn't happen to me I don't think I got that part of her but she loved a clean house a tidy house she loved ironing which I don't like so that's not so <laughs> I didn't like ironing and everyone knew her you know she lived on you know a small estate you know all her neighbors were quite you know the same all the time and she liked gossiping and chatting and you know she I love just, that yeah I love, she loved gossip and stuff she would always be gossiping on the phone and that's what I miss I miss those just ringing her up to moan about anything and yeah. just, she never 
one thing she never did was judge any of her children you know she never judged anything we did you know if we got pregnant I mean I was 18 but you know she never would judge me for any mistakes and she would always say you can come to me and tell me anything and we did you know even if it wasn't good you know she didn't judge us for that because I think you know her childhood she wasn't allowed to do certain things so the way you know it's very strict upbringing I think that's so much nicer you know when you want your kids to come to you and tell you anything even if you know if something's happened and you know you know you don't want them to be scared but she was just very open I think she's proud of all of her kids you know whatever lifestyle they they choose to have she would be proud of them Um, and that's that's who she is I think it's a really beautiful testament to who she was hearing the way you talk about her as a mom. Can you share with us yes. how you think she would like to be remembered? She would want to be remembered as a good mom. You know, that's that was what she would and and she was. I think she tried her best in the times where she probably struggled you know, her in her own mind, you know, she wasn't always the best that she could be, but she wanted to be a good mum and a good nan. And and she was, you know, she she'd lived a whole life for her children and that's how she'd want to be remembered. Do you have your what you'd like to read ready to yes, go? Yes, it's only a quick thing. So she that's didn't find any letters, really, that I well, not to me anyway. And she was an avid Facebook user, <laughs> aren't, aren't we all? And mm-hmm. um, she loved writing on Facebook. So this is something she'd written, um, I think it was 2014, 2015. And I'd read this out because it's, it's quite a nice one. And I think it goes hand in hand with, with being a mum and wanting to be remembered that way. So it's, I want to say thank you to my four beautiful daughters and my grandchildren for making my life worth living. I love you all very much. And I think that sums her up. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We release new episodes each week on Tuesdays, so be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you want to connect with us, you can follow us on Instagram at Remember Me Podcast. You can visit our website, RememberMeFTD.com, for more information on FTD, resources, and ways to support our podcast like joining Remembers Only. This podcast is produced by Maria Kent Beers and Rachel Martinez. And the beautiful music you hear is a song called So Damn Lucky by Bailey Kent. Whoa.